Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, 17 through 21. Fear leads to obedience. Fear leads to obedience. I don't know if you've been paying attention to the scriptures that we read this morning and even a few of the songs. One of the themes that you saw was the fear of the Lord, the fear of God. We have a wonderful privilege of being the children of God, do we not? Thank you. Once rebellious, disobedient children, we have graciously have been adopted and made joint heirs with Christ. We've been adopted by God and made joint heirs with Christ. This adoption grants us wondrous benefits that include not only a new heart and a new attitude and a new identity in the here and now, but also gives us the promise of an eternal home with the Father. That is what we've been seeing as we've been reading Peter's doxology in 1 Peter chapter 1. Now, as we've looked at the last few weeks, privilege, with privilege, comes responsibility. We understand that. If you are the, one of the privileged few, if you were the favorite son or the older son or the oldest daughter, you understand that privilege came with responsibility. And that's where we left off last week. Last week we saw that we were called to do two things because of our privilege as the elect exiles here in this world. First, we were to set our hope fully on our future grace, on the grace of our eternal heaven, our eternal life. And we do that by preparing our minds for action and having a clarity of mind in our struggle against sin. Secondly, we are to pursue holiness, not allowing ourselves to be enslaved by our old passions. Now, I, I, I need to add one important point that was brought up in our men's study this past week. Our pursuit of holiness is more, and I, I pray that you got this last week as I was teaching and preaching it, but our pursuit of holiness is more than just obeying a list of instructions or living by a set of standards or leave, even laying out healthy biblical boundaries. Pursuing holiness involves pursuing God. Let me get that once again. Pursuing holiness means pursuing God. We must understand that as children of God, it is our duty to emulate him. To pursue his character and person is our calling. When Paul writes to Timothy, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness, he is telling him to pursue God, pursue the character and person of God. In today's passage, Peter continues with the responsibilities of Christians living in a world that is hostile to our faith. This week we learned that the wonderful gifts of our Father should motivate us to obey. So last week was to pursue holiness, and this week it's obedience. Last week I shared a quote by Thomas Schreiner, if it's there on the monitor, if you'd like to see it. It says, because of the inheritance and salvation believers anticipate, they should set their hope completely in Christ's coming and devote themselves to holiness. That's what we saw last week, and this week we're going to finish off the quote, and to live in fear. Let's read the passage, 1 Peter chapter 1, 17-21. 
<clears throat> Peter writes, And if you call on him as a father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb's without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Father, I pray that you'd open up our minds and hearts to receive what you've written here. Help us to see the importance of Scripture to life and godliness and holiness. Help us to embrace these words as living words from, from the Holy Spirit, from the revelation of the Trinity. And I pray that you'd give us understanding between your word and my mere opinion. Let us be able to respond to your Holy Spirit's work. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We read three imperatives as we look at the passage of 13 through 21. Set our hope fully on future grace, pursue holiness, and this week live in fear. Now let's start with verse 17 with the phrase, if you call on him as father. Peter is writing to those who are the elect, the, the chosen of God. If is a conditional word. Peter is setting here the parameters of who is to obey this next command. Basically he's saying, if you are one of God's children, then listen up, this is for you. The command, the precept here in this passage, the next responsibility of a child of God, Peter writes, is to conduct yourselves with fear. Conduct yourselves with fear. Now that word conduct means how we live. Not only are we here to live in holiness, but also live in fear. The word conduct here means your behavior, the way you live, the way you manage your, 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 your life and your daily walk. In other words, the way that we spend our time, our money, and work, and how we live and entertain ourselves should be with fear. Now, who are we to fear? Peter's not telling us here to live in a fearful state or to always be looking over our shoulders and fear the government or our neighbors or family, but to live in the fear of the Lord, the fear of God. And we usually don't think of fear of God as a good thing, but in this case it is. Throughout Scripture, God's people have been called to fear God. And not in just what we read earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 6, but God told Moses again, Gather the people to me, speaking of the children of Israel, that, I may let the, that they may hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live in the earth, and that they may teach their children also to fear me. He goes on to say, Know then in your heart, that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and by fearing him. Proverb, one of the wisdom, tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Again, in Proverbs, be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh, refreshment to your bones. And lastly, Job, when stricken by Satan, declares in Job 28, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. So what's this fear we're talking about here? There can be many different types of ways that we may fear God. But biblical fear is not for the believer about terror 
or being scared, intimidated, or frightful about God. Thomas Schreiner writes that abject terror certainly does not fit, does not fit with joy and boldness of the Christian life. However, fear is what we are called to do. Biblical fear is where we understand who God is and who we are. Our default sinful position that we're born in is to have a high esteem of ourselves with a very low esteem view of God. That is the original sin. It's the rebellion against God's rule and law that was fueled by pride. Biblical fear consists of a reverent awe of who God is. It's a true understanding of He is the almighty power of the universe, the creator, the one who, if he were to withhold his hand, would stop each and every breath. And we've said it from the gospel primer, every function of our, or, of our organs, every heartbeat, every breath is a gift from God that he sustains us. We are not clocks that are wound up and then left to go until our battery or till it winds up just dying. But each moment is God saying, breathe, 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 live, live, live. And we must understand it. And once you understand that that is the God that we have, that is a God worthy of awe and reverence. Like a child who lovingly looks up to his father and seeks to please him, so is fear of the Lord. Biblical fear is when God's children desire to avoid God's discipline that he shared with us in Deuteronomy and his fatherly displeasure by serving him. Take your Bibles if you would and let's turn to Hebrews chapter 12 and just get a glimpse of that. We see in, in, in Deuteronomy that God is, a, is one who disciplines but in Hebrews, we see another familiar portion of Scripture. The writer of Hebrew helps us understand the connection between discipline and fear. In Hebrews chapter 12, look at verse 5. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Verse 6, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Verse 8. If you are left without discipline of Hebrews chapter 12 verse 8, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father? of spirits and life and live. For they discipline us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Verse 11. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. No one likes discipline. No one seeks it out. We fear it. We do not desire to engage in it. Now our fear of God, though, is not one of condemnation from a cruel, harsh ju judge, but tempered with the loving tenderness of a father. And Dustin, how I wish I would have had that quote from Martin Luther King to throw in here. I wish I, I could have it. But in Sunday school, and I encourage you to join us uh, each Sunday morning at 945 for our adult core classes. We are working our way through the second part of church history. And in it, Martin Luther, if I could just take a break here, is kind of saying before he came to knew God, he hated the God. He hated the God, even as a monk. 
Even as one who worshipped him and, and, and did all these wonderful things that in his mind to appease God, he just saw God as a hateful, cruel God who was ready to just to pounce on him. That's my paraphrase. But our fear of God does not, uh, does not look at one who is a harsh judge, but one who's tempered with the loving tenderness of a father. You see, there's a balance between confidence and fear. In Hebrews 4.16, we find, because, we find that because of Jesus, we can with confidence draw near to the throne room of grace, that we may reserve mercy and find grace to help in time of need. But yet, let's also remember that God is not our buddy. That God is not my homeboy. You know, God is not just some guy that I hang around and I can be flippant with. May we have the attitude of Isaiah who came to the throne room of God and said, Woe unto me, a man of unclean lips. When we see God, I don't think it'll be like in the shack and the other things that you see where we're just going to sit down and flip hamburgers with and walk through things. I think we will fall down and worship him until he reaches and brings us up as a loving father. So our fear of God includes approaching God as a loving father who still demands respect. Theologian again, Thomas Schreiner, illustrates this point when he writes, a confident driver also possesses a healthy fear of an accident that prevents him from doing anything foolish. So fear or the absence of fear is not a good thing. Fear is actually a cure for stupidity. And so we need to realize that a fear of God, a good, healthy, biblical fear of God, keeps us from pursuing those things that would be wicked. A genuine fear of judgment hinders believers from giving in to libertinism. Libertinism, and I'm not saying that actually correctly, but you understand what I'm speaking about, is a practice or habit of life that has a disregard of authority, especially in the matters of religion. Peter commands that the fear of God is actually a protection against pride. The kind of pride that seeks out pleasure and satisfaction outside the promises of God. Satan himself did not have a fear of God. For he said, I will ascend to the most high throne. I will be like God. So fear of God is a protection against pride that you and I are born with and that we, we coddle our whole lives. Unfortunately, too many professing Christians are still living their lives seeking satisfaction in the false promises of Satan. Some wittingly, some unwittingly. King Solomon, the son of David, who's the wisest man that ever lived other than Jesus, declares that after a lifetime of pursuit of satisfaction and work, in ruling and in pleasures outside the promises of God, concluded in Ecclesiastes that the end of the matter is this. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And this command is important. But the writer of Hebrews warns, For we know whom who said, Vengeance of his mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Now let us go back, excuse me, to the, <coughs> to the preceding phrase. God our Father judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Not only should we have a healthy biblical fear of God, 
but we recognize we do because one day we will be judged. Now there's two things revealed in that phrase. God, number one, God judges each of us individually on what we have done, but also God judges impartially. Peter tells his original readers and us as well that our lives here, though temporary, is important. You must understand how you and I live our lives matter. Let me say it again, because I want you to grab this. How you and I live our days, the things that we think, the things that we do, the things that we Instagram and Facebook, all these things that we do matters for eternity. Not just in the here and now, but it matters. We are called to be salt and light to a world that they may taste and see that God is good. Our lives are described as a, a fragrance, and aroma that spreads from one that leads to life to life to some, death to death. Though exiles in this world, we are called to make a difference, and we can. Others will be watching our lives and watching your testimony. How does he respond to life? Does it measure up as I ask for you? Does it measure up as one who professes that Jesus is Lord. One day you will stand before him and you will be judged of all that you've done in this world. With that in mind, God will judge each one of us how we've lived. Scripture tells us in Romans, he will render to each one according to his work. In Romans, he says, on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. In 2 Corinthians, so whether we are home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Let me tell you, there is an interview that you will stand before that will quake you in your boots. And you will have to stand alone before the Almighty God as your life and your motivations for all that you did is stripped away. On March 12th, 10.30, 11.30, you were here at Orange Villa Bible Church. Why were you there? God will be able to strip all the motivations of the heart and see exactly why we do and what we do and how we did it. Now this judgment is not of condemnation, as I said once again. For the believer, we must understand and be confident that in our fear of the Lord, we are not fearful of God's wrath or his condemnation, but of faithfulness. Paul tells the Corinthian church as required of stewards to be, faith, be found faithful. Jesus taught several parables that pointed out the necessity of faithfulness of servants. As servants of God, you and I have been given many instructions that's found in God's word. Our ministry here just at Orange Villa states that we exist to glorify God by obeying the Great Commission with the heart of the Great Commandment. Now you know this if you've ever been in our membership classes. In Matthew 28, we find this Great Commission Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In Matthew, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. 
He that this is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So just from these two passages alone, we see that God has called us to share the gospel, to join in covenant community with each other, to live life together and helping each other grow in Christ, to love God with all of our being, and to love our neighbors as if they were ourselves. From these two passages, Scripture tells us, the whole law hangs and is balanced. Believers, we will be evaluated on our faithfulness to the commands of God. So we ask, who have you shared the gospel with? In what way are you joined to a community? Who are you doing life with? Who are you building up and encouraging and doing all the one another's with? In what way are you focusing and loving God with all that you have, including your money, your time, your energy, and your thoughts? And does your interaction with your neighbors show that you're loving them as yourself? Do you pursue their happiness as much as you pursue your own? These are the things that we'll be evaluated on. This is just two verses. So there's a, a, an impetus for us to learn, to understand what we will be evaluated on. James, the brother of Jesus, warned the first church of Jerusalem to speak and act as those who will be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. Our obedience to God's commands is motivated by the mercy that God has shown us as a loving father. Peter also writes that God will judge impartially. He doesn't play favorites with his children. This should bring us joy and confidence. For so many of us spend so much time and energy trying to win favor among others or trying to get a leg up in life, trying to make the fairness an equal. Earlier in his life, Peter, after meeting Cornelius, the Roman centurion, he replied when Cornelius accepted Christ, when he saw that the Holy Spirit was also given to the Gentiles. Peter said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. If you want to find yourself acceptable to God, it's one who fears him and obeys him, understanding that one day we'll stand before him and he will judge us according to our works, but with no partiality. Let us go now to verse 17b. As Peter reminds his readers that they are strangers and aliens. Conduct your life with fear as you live in this world. We do not know how long we have, but this life that we live matters. We are given a purpose. We will be evaluated according by our faithfulness to that purpose. Now our experience of alienation that we have in this world from society and culture stems from our now from differing values. And I pray today that you as professing Christians have different values than the world. And it shows. And that it's very clear. I would say to you that if, if I were to talk to your neighbors or to your friends or to other family members or even to your coworkers, if they were to be surprised to know that you went to church and that you were a professing Christian, then I would say there's probably a problem with the values that you're living out at work. There ought to be a difference. There ought to be something that says they are different. And in, in Acts, we see that the, the Christians were turning the world upside down. They were named Christians because they were Christ-like. There was something different. 
Peter is saying our world, our lives during this time of exile needs to be marked by differing values. And let me tell you, we live in a day and age in which our values should be very stark and very clear. I know that there are times that we're still kind of in murky ground. We're still trying to figure things out. Many times we're confused. I understand that and I accept that. And let's work together to try to understand how biblical wisdom helps us deal with these competing desires and competing values. But it must be marked differently. We once held the same values of the world, but no longer as children of God. These values we now hold serves as witnesses to the glorious work of Christ of what he's done by saving us from our sins. It's an invitation to submit to his kingdom and to his rule. And it points to his return to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Again, God has called us to be faithful and we will be judged accordingly. Acts chapter 10, he tells us, and he commanded us, uh, Peter says, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he, Jesus, is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. Our values must teach us. It must demonstrate that. It must make it manifest. We need to blare it out. In Timothy, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Again, in 1 Peter, we'll look at this in several months. He says, they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Our lives must be marked out because they too will be judged. But their judgment will be to condemnation. Ours will be on unfaithfulness. Theirs will be to condemnation. So our lives are testimonies to the work of God. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. Paul writes to inspires his readers to live faithfully and not to be paralyzed from fear. And I want you to, you may want to mark this portion of scripture out if it's not already. Paul writes, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but, with, but we an imperishable Verse 26, so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul here recognizes that he too will be judged and evaluated by his faithfulness. And his desire is when he stands before God is to hear those precious words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. So shall we. Now as we move on in verses 18 through 21, Peter gives us three motivations to fear God and to obey. He gives us three motivations to obedience. The first one is we were ransomed from that which could not save. You and I are ransomed from that which could not save. Now this one is more of a negative in that Peter states what could not save us. Peter reminds his readers that their ancestors were idol worships. Do not go into the futile way of their forefathers. They were not given the law or the promise of God. Remember, he's writing to a Gentile audience. 
They were not the Jews. They were without hope. They had, did not have the gospel. They did not have the law. They had no hope of salvation. Yet through the obedience of Christians that shared the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit, they were introduced to the mercies of God. As Jesus would say, the wind blew in John chapter 3. Peter says in their case, speaking of their parents, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They must understand that we too were once idol worshipers. Our minds were blinded by Satan. Their parents and their parents' parents were blinded by ignorance and idolatry. That was essentially the worship of demons. Peter informed the Corinthians that food offered to idols is anything, or is an idol anything? Of course not. No, he goes, I apply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. You and I must realize that when we walk and we see these people with, with idols and they still kind of sacrifice and worship them, those are actually demons behind them. You know that you were pagans, he writes. You were led astray to mute idols. But listen to what he says. The light that shone out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You were once futile in your thinking. Your parents were blinded. They were ignorant. They would bow down to dead idols that were nothing but demons. But now you have been shown. And he's saying, fear God. Do not go back to that. You were ransomed out of that, that lifestyle, out of that history. Paul would go on to encourage the Thessalonians when he heard how they had turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God who delivers us from the wrath to come. We were ransomed from that which could not save. As we read our scripture reading earlier, and Moses is telling, or God is telling Moses, is to teach these things to your children so that your children would remember where you came from. Sometimes I think too many of us don't remember where we, who we once were or where we came from. We don't remember what our lives were like. Or maybe if you're like me who've known Christ for many, many years, you know, it was like, I think, first grade when we first started going to church and my mom became saved. We don't understand a different type of life. And so that we think that we've been born almost with a spiritual silver spoon. So maybe we haven't been as evil as we could have been. God has restrained us and his gift in giving us into Christian families have protected us. Many times we're guilty of not recognizing what we could be or who we could have been without the mercy of God. And some of you know very well, for you lived many years sowing the wild oats, living in ignorance before you were introduced to Christ. Peter's saying, don't forget that. Don't forget that. You need to fear God because without God, you would be still lost without hope. But number two, he tells us we were ransomed by Jesus, the Son of God. Now here Peter gives a positive. We were ransomed not by gold or silver, but something much more precious, the blood of Christ. Scripture tells us that do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? For we were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Again, in 1 Corinthians, you were bought with the price, so do not become bondservants of men. 
The Son of Man in Matthew came to serve, or came not to serve, but to serve, to be, to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And again in 1 Timothy, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, who gave himself as a ransom. See, some of you think you have because it's a great inheritance that was passed on you from your mother, your father, your grandfather, or so on and so forth, from some Christian church or from church you belong to. But you need to recognize that you were ransomed. It costs something to deliver you from the penalty of your sin and from the presence of sin and the power of sin. And I want you to listen as if it's the very first time you have ever heard it. Too many times we are guilty of tuning out due to the familiarity of the gospel. Peter goes on to point out that you and I were not just ransomed with money, but with Christ's blood. The cost was high. We were liberated from the penalty and power of sin at a very high cost. <clears throat> Again, let's go to scripture. Leviticus tells us, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your sins. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So before the days before Christ came, they would, have to, they would have to kill bulls and slaughter animals and birds and little lambs to atone for blood. But in Hebrews he says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And let me share you once again, it was not just one drop of blood. There's a song that's just a terrible song that ought to be just thrown out. It took just one, blood, one drop. It's like if Jesus, all Jesus had to do is go to the Red Cross and just make a little blood donation and then all of our sins would be forgiven. Hogwash! He was bruised. He was beaten. He was torn out. I think what would do some of us some good, though I'm not advocating it, is to go and watch a bull or a lamb totally uh, split apart and cut up as an offering. I think it would change our mind and help us to understand what happened to Christ. We, 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 we look back at the pictures of refugees and others who are being, being, be, being beaten, who are being uh, crucified. We, we can't stand it, those pictures and those videos of dogs that are being abused. Well, imagine now the Son of God himself down on that cross, beaten and torn. And blood flowing down. It didn't take just one drop. He was poured out for our iniquity. I'm way off my notes. Jesus is that sinless, perfect lamb. He who was without sin became sin for us. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. This here shows the deep love and the deep commitment of the Father and the deep commitment Christ made in order to reconcile us back to the Father. When he said, I'll go, when he said, I'll obey, he knew the cost. He counted it and counted it worthy with joy. Paul gives us a simple, great gospel when he writes that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Of Jesus, Paul writes, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. The cost of our redemption, our ransom, our liberation should be obedience. Paul wrote to the Philippians, my beloved, 
As you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Jesus is also precious because he was deeply loved by the Father. Peter tells us that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. He was more than just a mere man, but he was the Son of God sent down to show us the love of the Father. Jesus would tell his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Conduct yourselves with fear in this exile world, in this presence world. Why? Because we have been ransomed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Word, the second person of the Trinity, the one who loved us and gave his life. And then thirdly, the third motivation to obedience is that our faith and hope are found in him. In 1 Peter chapter 1, if you're still there, in verse 21, Peter writes, Through him we are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Christ's death, burial, and resurrection has enabled you and I to be reconciled with God. Our hope is found in God. Our trust is only in the promises of God. This should lead us to obedience. Our hope cannot be found in any other thing. King Solomon has written that hope in anything but God is futile and full of vanity. Just as in verse 9 and 13 of 1 Peter chapter 1, our hope is found in God. So what does this mean for me personally? What does this mean for us as a church to conduct our lives with fear? To obey God, understanding that we will one day stand before him. It means to be faithful. This means that you and I are called as exiles to live a life of obedience that is grounded both in the love that God has for us and the fear of facing his displeasure as our loving father. I ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 5 one last time. In Galatians chapter 5, I cannot overstate the importance of pursuing holiness and obedience as children of God. Paul warns the Galatians in chapter 5, verse 19, that the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you as I warned you before that those who do such things will what? not inherit the kingdom of God. Let those things not be said of us. Let our character not be shown in the works of the flesh. Let us pursue holiness and obedience to commands of Christ that we may glorify our Father and lead others to worship him. Paul urges those in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. You'll see it there on the monitor. Paul writes this. Since we have these promises. What promises? All the promises that Peter has been telling us. All the promises that are found in scripture. He says, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit. Bringing holiness to completion in what? In the fear 
of God. As for the church, we are here to encourage and to build one another up. You are not on this journey alone. Together we are stronger and better. Let us work out our salvation in fear and trembling as the body of Christ, leaving no one behind. Let me close with this. It's still on the screen. It should be on the screen. Psalm 62. David, the psalmist, writes, Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. May God find us faithful as elect exiles in a world that is hostile to our faith, that they may see God and that they may come to worship him as well. With every head bowed, if you would please, and every eye closed, I'll ask the worship team to quietly make their way up. This is the time where we pause to consider, to pray and respond to what the Holy Spirit has for us. It may be different for each of you. But to the believer, I would say, recognize the importance of living a life of obedience. One that points to Christ and is a good witness. Remember what we have been delivered from and by whom we have been liberated from and from the wrath of God. Find someone to mentor. Seek out someone to encourage and do life with them. To the believer that may be here who is struggling, do not neglect the gift that God has given you as a child of God. Embrace the cross, deny yourself, and pursue holiness and obedience. Partner up with a stronger Christian and ask them to mentor you and to walk with you. If you're here today and you have not yet accepted Christ, you're an unbeliever, would you please turn and trust in Christ for salvation? The judgment you face is of condemnation. Your fear of God is different. And I pray that you may not face God as one who is standing on their own. It does not have to be so. God is ready to claim you as one of his own children if you would only trust and obey. Would you call out to him this morning? We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.